his name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. And I invite you to give your attention to God's word as we continue in the gospel according to Luke. The doctor has good news. Oh, another little update just to point out to you. Normally in two weeks on the first Sunday in April, we would celebrate the Lord's Supper. However, we're going to postpone that celebration until the following Thursday, which is Maundy Thursday. So instead of having the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday in April, we'll celebrate together on Thursday evening, Monday, Thursday at 630. Luke chapter six, we have made our way all the way to verse 27. And we're going to be talking about hard things today. But necessary things. And reminding you of the source. This is God's word. I'm not here to present to you merely my opinion or just fill the air with more information in this age of the information superhighway. We today are delving into the truth, not my truth or your truth, the truth. Hear the word of God. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Or even sinners love those who love them. And if you... Do good to those who do good to you. What benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil be merciful, even as your father is merciful. And I told you these were hard things. But the grass withers and the flower fades. Yet the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Amen. Alexander Solzhenitsyn has said, The line between good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all. Human hearts. He was one, of course, who was a part of the Soviet system of communism and who experienced the wrath of its iron hand, having been incarcerated in the Gulag archipelago. He knew about ideologies and he knew about evil political systems, and yet he discerned this great and grand truth. It's easy for us to point overseas to godless systems of rule or even to our own culture. It's more difficult to look at our own hearts and say, oh, there's plenty of evil to deal with right there. The Lord Jesus begins by saying, but I say to you who hear. And there is much meaning in that phrase, isn't there? Because not everyone hears. Knowing that we naturally are dead in our sins and trespasses, we don't have the capability to hear truth or to receive truth or even to like the truth. 
And so we shouldn't be surprised when pagans act like pagans, people who have not benefited from the saving grace of God and are thus being saved and sanctified by God. We shouldn't expect them to get it. That's why the airwaves, the Internet, print media is filled with all kinds of contradictions to the will and purpose of God because they have not received the truth. And so Jesus is speaking to those who have ears to hear. And then he says something that, as far as we can tell, William, William Hendrickson says, in studying all of the relevant literature, ancient and near ancient, that nothing like this phrase is found anywhere in it. Love your enemies. Not even the Jews taught this. Now, of course, they affirmed, as God had commanded, to love your neighbors. But in the succeeding Jewish literature that is uninspired, that which is supposed to be an exposition of the ancient writing of Scripture, they made allowance for the hatred of enemies. But Jesus gives us a different word. Having been told to love our neighbors, he commands that we love our enemies. Just in case you're wondering, that takes in everybody. It runs the whole gamut. And we, of course, at this point, need to understand who it is that's uttering these words. It's not just anyone. It's not somebody who's just looking to gather a great following for himself. This is God who has come among us, being one of us, who is the author of the ancient words of the text. Remember, Jesus, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's the Lord Jesus. He has always been. And so Jesus speaks on Mount Sinai. Just as surely as he does on the mount where he delivers the sermon or on the plain where he delivers this one. Same author. We're not talking about someone new who's coming along saying, oh, by the way, you've heard all that stuff in the Old Testament. Let me start over and let's talk about something new. He didn't come, as he said in the Sermon on the Mount, to remove so much as a jot or a tittle from the law. Rather, he came to fulfill it. And so the Lord Jesus expounds upon what has already been inspired. He does not in any wise do away with it. And he gives us a fuller meaning of what it actually says. And so we are commanded indeed to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate us. Jesus is Lord and therefore the ultimate authority in all things. The ultimate authority in all things. Who has authority? You know, if I'm experiencing engine trouble or things of a mechanical nature, a lot of other things, too, I'm thankful that I've got a brother, my older brother, Dan, that I can call. He's the smart one in the family. Uh, He's the one who can figure out things like that. If my motorcycle is acting up and the car is doing something, or his daddy was telling me the other day he couldn't get his lawnmower started and was going to take it down to the repair shop, I said, let Dan look at it first. He knows things. Jesus ultimately knows all things for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority so you see as those who believe in jesus we willingly subject to his authority after all jesus said if you love me you will obey my commandments now doesn't that stand to reason if you love somebody you listen to them i've used this analogy numerous times even here with you What kind of a husband would I be if I claimed to love my wife and yet didn't care for what she said? What kind of love would that be? And yet, how many people are going about in the world today talking about how they're trusting in Jesus as Savior, but they call themselves carnal Christians? They call themselves people who are saved, but not necessarily disciples. That's a false distinction. 
When the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You don't get him in pieces. And so a love for Jesus means listening to what he says, means taking to heart to what he says. It means knowing he's got the authority to speak into our lives. And so we must take that into account in blessing those who curse us, praying for those who abuse us. This cannot happen naturally. It must only happen as we have been supernaturally transformed by the grace of God and are being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. Nobody in a natural state, at least few people in a natural state, would be this way. Now, common grace is such that, frankly, it is possible to see unbelievers doing a better job at this than many Christians do. I'm just telling you that based on anecdotal experience as much as anything. But that's by the grace of God, even though common, not saving grace, as I say, it's exercised by many unbelievers. But we must listen to this because I see many people representing Christ who speak angrily and hatefully about those who disagree with us. It shouldn't be that way, brethren. It should not be that way. Yes, indeed, Jesus is the Lord and he has authority to speak these things into our lives. And so God's own mercy itself is our GPS route, our map for the way of loving kindness that we are to travel. You know, I was uh, trying to get from the MTW office to the car rental center at the Atlanta airport on Friday. Again, pouring down rain, six lanes of traffic, looked like a parking lot. And, you know, when Dr. Poland was preaching on the patience of God last week, Jim Robinson and I decided he was talking about both of us in traffic. And, Jim, there I was on Friday, I'm sure, doing a lot worse than you do in the traffic. Where are all these people going? And, and then I realized they're probably saying that about me, too. You know, and I had my GPS there, and I plugged in. You know, what I thought I was supposed to, Enterprise, Rent-A-Car, Atlanta Airport. It had me to get off at Peachtree. Do you know how many Peachtree roads there are in Atlanta? <laughs> I thought maybe it's just routing me around traffic until I found that there was this nice, wonderful enterprise rent-a-car place right in the middle of downtown Atlanta that was nowhere near the airport and about as helpful to me as a milk bucket under a bull. (laughs) Sorry, that's just what came to mind. Bud Wisson used to say, son, you'll never get above your raising, and he just had an experience of that. But nevertheless, there I was. So, you know, I just forgot about the car rental center and I just plugged in Atlanta Airport so I could get off of whichever peach tree that was and wound up where I needed to be. Many of us wind up the wrong destination because we're following the wrong GPS route. We've got coordinates plugged in and they're taking us to a destination, but it's not the right one. These are our coordinates. Jesus has provided them for us. And we have to yield ourselves to him, plug them in, and follow wherever they lead. And if it leads through the middle of loving enemies and doing good to those who do evil to us and doing all manner of other things that are contrary to what the world teaches, then by his grace, we'll follow the map that is laid out. Because who else has the words of life? Who else grants us saving grace? Who else loves us and is the perfect embodiment of the very things that he teaches? It is the Lord Jesus. Even to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Now, 
a lot of commentators on this and have written much about this, but the general sense of this is not necessarily to do this literally. Even Jesus didn't do it literally when he was struck on the cheek at the time of his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet, it conveys the attitude that we're to have in our hearts. Our inclination is to strike back when somebody strikes us. If somebody insults us, we'll come up with a bigger insult and say it to them. Or if you're like me, two days later after it's happened, I'll think of what I should have said, and I'm just as guilty as if I'd said it at the time. Yeah, if I, if I said things the way I thought of them after everything was over, boy, I'd be something. I say that for sermons, too. All this week, I'll be thinking of all the stuff I should have said, and I apologize now. So it's a matter of the attitude that when somebody strikes us, when they insult us, how do we feel about that? First of all, there ought to be a pity in our heart as we're looking across at someone who either is possibly a believer walking in sin, but more likely an unbeliever who is lost and dying and on their way to a Christless eternity unless they repent and believe in the gospel. There ought to be a sense of, of sorrow in our hearts and of compassion for them. That we would love them. And even as people who would take from us, that uh, we would have this generous spirit. Now, this doesn't remove in any way the need to be protective of our family or even of our property. But again, it speaks to the attitude of the heart giving to those who beg, and even from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. There's the golden rule. A rule that was stated in many ways, but in negative terms. Generally placed in terms of whatever you wouldn't want people to do to you, don't do that to them. But that's just one aspect of the law in refraining to do something. It's like when the Bible tells us, thou shalt not bear false witness. Certainly that means we should refrain from lying. But the positive command there is we should be people who speak truth. Not just withholding falsehood, but speaking truth. And every commandment is like that. Thou shalt not make for yourselves any graven image. Or the first commandment. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Sorry, I was raised with the King James Version. That's just what's programmed in here. You shall not make for yourselves or have for yourselves any other god than the Lord God. What's the positive inference there? Worship the Lord and him only. So every commandment, even when placed in the negative, is stated in the positive. And others have stated this negatively, but Jesus states it in the positive. Not just refraining to do to others what you wouldn't want done to you, but do for them what you would want done for you. That's worth more than gold, as we call it, the golden rule. And so we see that that is a map for us in understanding this route of loving kindness that the true sons of God are called upon to travel. Micah 6, 8, it's known to many of us. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The attitude is so important to be loving and caring and merciful and gracious, even to a world that is undeserving of it, to toward neighbors who are undeserving of it. Because after all, are not we undeserving of God's favor? 
Do you think God likes you because you're so much better than everybody else? I don't think anybody here would say that. I'm looking at you. You all look nice and humble. and some, I just saw somebody's mouth drop open. Of course. And yet, many times, we operate with that kind of attitude. Jesus calls us to live a different way. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Many of us are getting life wrong because we're following the wrong standard. We're allowing the world to steer us in directions we were never meant to go. And yet the Lord has provided for us this wondrous example of himself. Jesus is the one perfect example of all that God requires. Look unto Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, he's just come out of Hebrews chapter 11. All of these wonderful examples of living by faith. The accomplishments of saints of old. Very imperfect people who accomplished extraordinary things because they had faith in God. Don't read that chapter and think, wow. Abel offered a more perfect sacrifice. Noah built an ark. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. No, the point is they lived by faith. They trusted in God. So if anybody asks you to summarize Hebrews 11 by telling you all the things that those people did, don't panic and think, oh, no, what did everybody do? Just remember, they trusted God. That summarizes the whole chapter. So all of those who have gone before us serve as this great cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. As I think J.B. Phillips said, the sin which dogs our feet. I get that because I've trek through the woods, through stuff that we call in the mountains dog hobble. And it hobbles dogs and people who are trying to uh, get rid of the stuff that clings to us so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder or author, pioneer and perfecter, finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Jesus. So in sharing with those uh, new missionaries on Friday, and I made the effort to go there because I believe those are heroes. Young people who have answered the call and some older ones who have answered the call to go to some dangerous places. Parts of Africa, the Near East, and other countries that I can't name. They are willing to go. And I wanted to go speak to them. I wanted to have that privilege and honor of just being among them and being able to address them as a representative of our denomination and to charge them. How is it that we can do things so extraordinary? You're not going to get the inspiration but from your favorite movie. Probably not from your favorite book outside of the Bible. It is by looking to Jesus. It is by understanding that God has not called us to do what we're able to do. Now, I know some of you think, what heresy has he wandered off to? I've listened to preachers on the radio sometimes. You know, they'll make a statement and I've nearly run off the road. And I thought, oh, no, he's run off the rails. What? And then he'll say something and bring it all back. No, God's not called you to do what you're able to do. He's called you to trust him. That is called you to do what he can do through you. What is my hope and glory? Christ in me. I'm not living life by my own strength. 
I'm not here because on some New Year's morning I got up and made a resolution and said, by all the might within me, I'm going to live for Jesus. No, I got here because I'm repenting every day of my sins and I'm trusting in the one who is able to do in me far and above all that I could ever ask or think. We do what we do because Christ lives in us. Because his life is our life and we're joined in union with him. He is my hope and glory and he not only is my perfect example that I'm called to follow. He is the power that resides in me to do these things that would be impossible otherwise, at least to do them consistently. And let's face it, none of us can do these things consistently in our own efforts. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. That's true. Right. We don't need examples of that. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? You know, many times we find ourselves easily doing nice things for people who will do nice things in return to us. But what about doing nice things for people who have no intention of ever repaying us? Our natural inclination is to turn away from that and say, well, no, why would I do that? And yet, when are we more like God? For God has done for those who are absolutely undeserving. While we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. And this doesn't mean that you just go out and freely give away everything to everybody in, a, in an irresponsible sense. Giving cash to an alcoholic or a drug addict. We have to be discerning, don't we? We have to be wise. We need to be good stewards. And yet our hearts need to be generous and kind and gracious toward others. Extending the benefit of the doubt. When the earthquake struck southern Turkey and northern Syria some months ago and all the tens of thousands of lives had been lost, we lost two wonderful partners in ministry in uh, Antioch, the Antioch that we read about in the Bible. A pastor and his wife, both killed in the earthquake, an eight-year-old son survived. His name is Yoel. Now, stuff circulates on the Internet, stories go around, and you've heard all of those, and I generally don't retell those because oftentimes you can't verify the authenticity. This comes to me directly from the source. Lloyd Kim went to seminary with a gentleman who uh, pastors in Smyrna, the Smyrna, in Turkey, who knew this couple, who traveled to the funeral and was there and made a record of what this young eight-year-old named Yoel prayed at his parents' funeral. Just bear with me and listen to this. Thank you, Lord, for taking my parents from this wicked world. From this world that is getting worse day by day to your paradise. They are safe today. They are in the best place today by your side. We will suffer. We will grieve. But soon we will rejoice. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that one day I will be able to see them again. You are a good God. I know how much you love them. That's why you took them with you. You took them with you so they wouldn't suffer. I thank you 
Glorify your name. Amen. I'd like to think when I grow up, I'll have the faith of that eight-year-old. I dread the day I'll lose my parents. And yet he demonstrates for us what a genuine faith looks like when this evil atrocity, though it's a natural event, sure. But the result of us living in a sinful world that's under a curse, when this earthquake came and took his parents, the world would say he would have every right to be angry, even to be angry with God. Don't ever think we have a right to be angry with God. I'm sorry if I've just, no, I'm not sorry. If I've just contradicted your therapist or something a pastor has told you, I'm glad I am. We have no right to be angry with God. He loves us. He is good and gracious. The evil atrocities that happen in this world happen because of sin. God is the remedy for that through Jesus Christ. His son and this young man prayed this prayer because... He has come to experience the good grace of God and it transformed his thinking from what it might have been into this beautiful prayer. So being merciful as the father is merciful is the indicator that we have received mercy. It's not just the ability to articulate an orthodox faith and to be able to state the creeds and confessions that are altogether important. But we are no more like God when we are merciful toward those who are undeserving of mercy. Because he is merciful toward us, his children, who are undeserving of it. Third John, verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. It's a simple blanket statement. We don't get to heaven because of our works. It's not that we do these things that Jesus has commanded in this passage because we're trying to earn our way to heaven. We do these things because we have heaven as an inheritance and we understand what have I got to lose in this world? What could I possibly give up that is of any value? Remembering the words of Jim Elliott, the missionary who gave his life along with others in Ecuador so many years ago. He is no fool who will give up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And so love your enemies, as he recaps, and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. And he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. I will tell you, as I have already said, with the best of intentions, we cannot fulfill this perfectly and consistently. And yet we are trusting in the one who fulfilled it perfectly and consistently. Go back this afternoon if you have time or reflect on it whenever you have the opportunity. And think about how this is an autobiography of the Lord Jesus himself. Think of the ways he fulfilled the things that he taught. All of us would love to have a preacher that practices what he preaches. And we won't see that perfectly demonstrated in anybody but Jesus. But he did. They cast lots for his tunic. When he was insulted and abused and beaten and tortured. He tried to get no one back. In fact, as he was hanging on that cross in torturous pain with iron spikes pierced through his feet and hands. A crown of thorns crushed down upon his brow. 
in more pain than we can possibly imagine, enduring the very wrath of God. What did he pray toward those who placed him there? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus didn't merely say these things. He lived them. And so this is a clarion call for all of us to repent and trust in him. What we could never do perfectly, he has. And so in our failures and in our sin, we repent and we believe in him and we receive him. And that perfect righteousness becomes ours. So that even though we will never live up to this standard perfectly in this life, no matter though we should strive for it all of our lives, yet we're trusting in the one who has done it perfectly. And that's why we worship him and adore him and we proclaim his wondrous love. Bud Wisson Hunt was a World War II veteran who was instrumental in getting me active in church when I was still in my idiot years in middle school and early high school. In his bass voice, he said, Pat, you need to be in the choir. I couldn't sing a lick. But I love Bud because he always respected us kids and he always spoke to us in a way that made us like him. And so I did. And before long, in a couple of years, I was serving on the board of deacons with him. There I was, an 18-year-old deacon serving next to this World War II veteran and others who were in the room. And I look back now and I shake my head and wonder, what were those poor people thinking? And he was just a good friend to me. He came and I had him speak, though he was a deacon. I had him speak in my ordination service in 1993, and he gave me the charge. And when I got back to Hazelwood to be the pastor, it soon became evident as to why I was there. He opened up his Bible after I was back there, and he had a copy of my ordination bulletin in there still from those years before. And he said, Pat, I want you to know that I'd been praying that the Lord would let me live long enough for you to be my pastor. I'm sorry. You, you got what you got when you got me as pastor. And I won't forget the afternoon when his sister-in-law, Mildred Summerow, called me on my phone and said, Patrick, something's happened to Bud. He's out in the garden, and I can't see him. I was already running. And he was lying at the edge of the garden. And I knew he had gone to be with Jesus, doing what he loved to do. And we sang at his funeral, What wondrous love is this? And as I think about him, the imperfect life that he lived, but a wonderful example for me, I realized what a summation that is of a true Christian life. Because we are never more like Jesus than when we speak and act in love. The one who in love gave himself for us is the one who in love gives us these instructions. And so we worship and adore him as we sing together. What wondrous love is this? Father in heaven, we know that we forever will fall short in this life of one who is more wonderful, whose name we are unworthy even to utter. 
And yet, he has called us his brothers. He has laid down his life for us. And he has shown us mercy. You have shown us mercy, gracious and loving Father. So, Lord, please, through or in spite of my stammering, stuttering, emotion-ridden voice, please accomplish through your word what you intend today. As we look to you in love, knowing that you first loved us, and, Lord, map the route to take us safely home. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. mercy and peace from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Be with and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. And everyone said together, Amen. Amen.